Section 14. The Philosopher, The Missionary Lady, A Game of Billiards, of On a Chinese Screen. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Nick Number. On a Chinese Screen by W. Somerset Maugham. Chapters 38 through 40. The Philosopher. It was surprising to find so vast a city in a spot that seemed to me so remote. From its battlemented gate towards sunset you could see the snowy mountains of Tibet. It was so populous that you could walk at ease only on the walls, and it took a rapid walker three hours to complete their circuit. There was no railway within a thousand miles, and the river on which it stood was so shallow that only junks of light burden could safely navigate it. Five days in a sampan were needed to reach the upper Yangtze. For an uneasy moment you asked yourself whether trains and steamships were as necessary to the conduct of life as we who use them every day consider, for here a million persons throve, married, begat their kind, and died. Here a million persons were busily occupied with commerce, art, and thought. And here lived a philosopher of repute, the desire to see whom had been to me one of the incentives of a somewhat arduous journey. He was the greatest authority in China on the Confucian learning. He was said to speak English and German with facility. He had been for many years secretary to one of the Empress Dowager's greatest viceroys, but he lived now in retirement. On certain days in the week, however, all through the year, he opened his doors to such as sought after knowledge, and discoursed on the teaching of Confucius. He had a body of disciples, but it was small, since the students for the most part preferred to his modest dwelling and his severe exhortations the sumptuous buildings of the foreign university and the useful science of the barbarians. With him this was mentioned only to be scornfully dismissed. From all I heard of him I concluded that he was a man of character. When I announced my wish to meet this distinguished person my host immediately offered to arrange a meeting, but the days passed and nothing happened. I made enquiries, and my host shrugged his shoulders. I sent him a chit and told him to come along, he said. I don't know why he hasn't turned up. He's a cross-grained old fellow. I did not think it was proper to approach a philosopher in so cavalier a fashion, and I was hardly surprised that he had ignored a summons such as this. I caused a letter to be sent, asking in the politest terms I could devise whether he would allow me to call upon him, and within two hours received an answer, making an appointment for the following morning at ten o'clock. I was carried in a chair. The way seemed interminable. I went through crowded streets and through streets deserted till I came at last to one, silent and empty, in which, at a small door in a long white wall, my bearers set down my chair. One of them knocked, and after a considerable time a Judas was opened. Dark eyes looked through, there was a brief colloquy, and finally I was admitted. A youth, pallid of face, wizened and poorly dressed, motioned me to follow him. I did not know if he was a servant or a pupil of the great man. I passed through a shabby yard and was led into a long, low room sparsely furnished with an American roll-top desk, a couple of blackwood chairs, and two little Chinese tables. Against the walls were shelves on which were a great number of books. Most of them, of course, were Chinese, but there were many, philosophical and scientific works, in English, French, and German, and there were hundreds of unbound copies of learned reviews. Where books did not take up the wall space hung scrolls on which in various calligraphies were written, I suppose, Confucian quotations. There was no carpet on the floor. It was a cold, bare, and comfortless chamber. Its somberness was relieved only by a yellow chrysanthemum which stood by itself on the desk in a long vase. I waited for some time, and the youth who had shown me in brought a pot of tea, two cups, and a tin of Virginian cigarettes. As he went out, the philosopher entered. 
I hastened to express my sense of the honor he did me in allowing me to visit him. He waved me to a chair and poured out the tea. I am flattered that you wish to see me, he returned. Your countrymen deal only with coolies and with compradors. They think every Chinese must be one or the other. I ventured to protest, but I had not caught his point. He leaned back in his chair and looked at me with an expression of mockery. They think they have but to beckon and we must come. I saw then that my friend's unfortunate communication still rankled. I did not quite know how to reply. I murmured something complimentary. He was an old man, tall, with a thin gray queue, and bright large eyes under which were heavy bags. His teeth were broken and discolored. He was exceedingly thin, and his hands, fine and small, were withered and claw-like. I had been told that he was an opium smoker. He was very shabbily dressed in a black gown, a little black cap, both much the worse for wear, and dark gray trousers gartered at the ankle. He was watching. He did not quite know what attitude to take up, and he had the manner of a man who was on his guard. Of course the philosopher occupies a royal place among those who concern themselves with the things of the spirit, and we have the authority of Benjamin Disraeli that royalty must be treated with abundant flattery. I seized my trowel. Presently I was conscious of a certain relaxation in his demeanor. He was like a man who was all set and rigid to have his photograph taken, but hearing the shutter click lets himself go and eases into his natural self. He showed me his books. I took the Ph.D. in Berlin, you know, he said and afterwards I studied for some time in Oxford. But the English, if you will allow me to say so, have no great aptitude for philosophy. Though he put the remark apologetically, it was evident that he was not displeased to say a slightly disagreeable thing. We have had philosophers who have not been without influence in the world of thought, I suggested. Hume and Berkeley? The philosophers who taught at Oxford when I was there were anxious not to offend their theological colleagues. They would not follow their thought to its logical consequences in case they should jeopardize their position in university society. Have you studied the modern developments of philosophy in America? I asked. Are you speaking of pragmatism? It is the last refuge of those who want to believe the incredible. I have more use for American petroleum than for American philosophy. His judgments were tart. We sat down once more and drank another cup of tea. He began to talk with fluency. He spoke a somewhat formal but an idiomatic English. Now and then he helped himself out with a German phrase. So far as it was possible for a man of that stubborn character to be influenced, he had been influenced by Germany. The method and the industry of the Germans had deeply impressed him, and their philosophical acumen was patent to him when a laborious professor published in a learned magazine an essay on one of his own writings. I have written twenty books, he said, and that is the only notice that has ever been taken of me in a European publication. But his study of Western philosophy had only served in the end to satisfy him that wisdom after all was to be found within the limits of the Confucian canon. He accepted its philosophy with conviction. It answered the needs of his spirit with a completeness which made all foreign learning seem vain. I was interested in this because it bore out an opinion of mine that philosophy is an affair of character rather than of logic. The philosopher believes not according to evidence, but according to his own temperament, and his thinking merely serves to make reasonable what his instinct regards as true. If Confucianism gained so firm a hold on the Chinese, it is because it explained and expressed them as no other system of thought could do. My host lit a cigarette. His voice at first had been thin and tired, but as he grew interested in what he said, it gained volume. He talked vehemently. There was in him none of the repose of the sage. He was a polemist and a fighter. He loathed the modern cry for individualism. For him society was the unit, and the family the foundation of society. 
He upheld the old China and the old school, monarchy, and the rigid canon of Confucius. He grew violent and bitter as he spoke of the students, fresh from foreign universities, who with sacrilegious hands tore down the oldest civilization in the world. "'But you, do you know what you are doing?' he exclaimed. "'What is the reason for which you deem yourselves our betters? Have you excelled us in arts or letters? Have our thinkers been less profound than yours? Has our civilization been less elaborate, less complicated, less refined than yours? Why, when you lived in caves and clothed yourself with skins, we were a cultured people.' Do you know that we tried an experiment which is unique in the history of the world? We sought to rule this great country not by force, but by wisdom, and for centuries we succeeded. Then why does the white man despise the yellow? Shall I tell you? Because he has invented the machine gun. That is your superiority. We are a defenseless horde, and you can blow us into eternity. You have shattered the dream of our philosophers that the world could be governed by the power of law and order, and now you are teaching our young men your secret. You have thrust your hideous inventions upon us. Do you not know that we have a genius for mechanics? Do you not know that there are in this country four hundred millions of the most practical and industrious people in the world? Do you think it will take us long to learn? And what will become of your superiority when the yellow man can make as good guns as the white and fire them as straight? You have appealed to the machine gun, and by the machine gun shall you be judged. But at that moment we were interrupted. A little girl came softly in and nestled close up to the old gentleman. She stared at me with curious eyes. He told me that she was his youngest child. He put his arms round her and, with a murmur of caressing words, kissed her fondly. She wore a black coat and trousers that barely reached her ankles, and she had a long pigtail hanging down her back. She was born on the day the revolution was brought to a successful issue by the abdication of the emperor. I thought she heralded the spring of a new era, he said. She was but the last flower of this great nation's fall. From a drawer in his roll-top desk he took a few cash, and handing them to her, sent her away. "'You see that I wear a cue,' he said, taking it in his hands. "'It is a symbol. I am the last representative of the old China.' He talked to me, more gently now, of how philosophers in long past days wandered from state to state with their disciples, teaching all who were worthy to learn. Kings called them to their councils and made them rulers of cities. His erudition was great, and his eloquent phrases gave a multicolored vitality to the incidents he related to me of the history of his country. I could not help thinking him a somewhat pathetic figure. He felt in himself the capacity to administer the state, but there was no king to entrust him with office. He had vast stores of learning which he was eager to impart to the great band of students that his soul hankered after, and there came to listen but a few wretched, half-starved, and obtuse provincials. Once or twice discretion had made me suggest that I should take my leave, but he had been unwilling to let me go. Now at last I was obliged to. I rose. He held my hand. I should like to give you something as a recollection of your visit to the last philosopher in China, but I am a poor man and I do not know what I can give you that would be worthy of your acceptance. I protested that the recollection of my visit was in itself a priceless gift. He smiled. Men have short memories in these degenerate days, and I should like to give you something more substantial. I would give you one of my books, but you cannot read Chinese. He looked at me with an amicable perplexity. I had an inspiration. Give me a sample of your calligraphy, I said. Would you like that? He smiled. In my youth I was considered to wield the brush in a manner that was not entirely despicable. He sat down at his desk, took a fair sheet of paper, and placed it before him. He poured a few drops of water on a stone, rubbed the ink-stick in it, and took his brush. With a free movement of the arm he began to write, and as I watched him I remembered with not a little amusement something else which had been told me of him. 
It appeared that the old gentleman, whenever he could scrape a little money together, spent it wantonly in the streets inhabited by ladies to describe whom a euphemism is generally used. His eldest son, a person of standing in the city, was vexed and humiliated by the scandal of this behavior, and only his strong sense of filial duty prevented him from reproaching the libertine with severity. I dare say that to a son such looseness would be disconcerting, but the student of human nature could look upon it with equanimity. Philosophers are apt to elaborate their theories in the study, forming conclusions upon life which they know only at second hand, and it has seemed to me often that their works would have a more definite significance if they had exposed themselves to the vicissitudes which befall the common run of men. I was prepared to regard the old gentleman's dalliance in hidden places with leniency. Perhaps he sought but to elucidate the most inscrutable of human illusions. He finished. To dry the ink, he scattered a little ash on the paper, and rising, handed it to me. "'What have you written?' I asked. I thought there was a slightly malicious gleam in his eyes. "'I have ventured to offer you two little poems of my own. I did not know you were a poet.' "'When China was still an uncivilized country,' he retorted with sarcasm, "'all educated men could write verse at least with elegance.' I took the paper and looked at the Chinese characters. They made an agreeable pattern upon it. Won't you give me a translation? Traduttore, traditore, he answered. You cannot expect me to betray myself. Ask one of your English friends. Those who know most about China know nothing, but you will at least find one who is competent to give you a rendering of a few rough and simple lines. I bade him farewell, and with great politeness he showed me to my chair. When I had the opportunity I gave the poems to a sinologue of my acquaintance, and here is the version he made. Footnote. I owe it to the kindness of my friend, Mr. P. W. Davidson. I confess that, doubtless unreasonably, I was somewhat taken aback when I read it. You loved me not, your voice was sweet, your eyes were full of laughter, your hands were tender, and then you loved me, your voice was bitter, your eyes were full of tears, your hands were cruel, sad, sad that love should make you unlovable. I craved the years would quickly pass, that you might lose the brightness of your eyes, the peach-bloom of your skin, and all the cruel splendor of your youth. Then I alone would love you, and you at last would care. The envious years have passed full soon, and you have lost the brightness of your eyes, the peach-bloom of your skin, and all the charming splendor of your youth. Alas, I do not love you, and I care not if you care. THE MISSIONARY LADY She was certainly fifty, but a life of convictions harassed by never a doubt had left her face unwrinkled. The hesitations of thought had never lined the smoothness of her brow. Her features were bold and regular, somewhat masculine, and her determined chin bore out the impression given you by her eyes. They were blue, confident, and unperturbed. They summed you up through large round spectacles. You felt that here was a woman to whom command came easily. Her charity was above all things competent, and you were certain that she ran the obvious goodness of her heart on thoroughly business lines. It was possible to suppose that she was not devoid of human vanity, and this is to be counted to her for grace, since she wore a dress of violet silk, heavily embroidered, and a toque of immense pansies which on a less respectable head would have been almost saucy. But my uncle Henry, for twenty-seven years vicar of Whitstable, who had decided views on the proper manner of dress for a clergyman's wife, never objected to my aunt Sophie wearing violet, and he would have found nothing to criticize in the missionary lady's gown. She spoke fluently, with the even flow of water turned on at a tap. 
Her conversation had the admirable volubility of a politician at the end of an electioneering campaign. You felt that she knew what she meant, with most of us so rare an accomplishment, and meant what she said. I always think, she remarked pleasantly, that if you know both sides of a question, you'll judge differently from what you will if you only know one side. But the fact remains that two and two make four, and you can argue all night and you won't make them five. Am I right or am I wrong? I hastened to assure her that she was right, though with these new theories of relativity and parallel lines behaving at infinity in such a surprising manner, I was in my heart of hearts none too sure. No one can eat their cake and have it, she continued, exemplifying Benedetto Croce's theory that grammar has little to do with expression, and one has to take the rough with the smooth, but as I always say to the children, you can't expect to have everything your own way. No one is perfect in this world, and I always think that if you expect the best from people, you'll get the best. I confess that I was staggered, but I determined to do my part. It was only civil. Most men live long enough to discover that every cloud has a silver lining, I began earnestly. With perseverance you can do most things that are not beyond your powers, and after all, it's better to want what you have than to have what you want. I thought her eyes were glazed with a sudden perplexity when I made this confident statement, but I dare say it was only my fancy, for she nodded vigorously. Of course, I see your point, she said. We can't do more than we can. But my blood was up now, and I waved aside the interruption. I went on. Few people realize the profound truth that there are twenty shillings in every pound and twelve pence in every shilling. I'm sure it's better to see clearly to the end of your nose than indistinctly through a brick wall. If there's one thing we can be certain about, it is that the whole is greater than the part. When, with a hearty shake of the hand, firm and characteristic, she bade me farewell, she said, Well, we've had a most interesting chat. It does one good in a place like this, so far away from civilization, to exchange ideas with one's intellectual equals. "'Especially other people's,' I murmured. "'I always think that one should profit by the great thoughts of the past,' she retorted. "'It shows that the mighty dead have not lived in vain.' Her conversation was devastating. A Game of Billiards I was sitting in the lobby of the hotel, reading a number, several days old, of the South China Times, when the door of the bar was somewhat brusquely thrown open, and a very long, thin man appeared. "'Do you care for a game of billiards?' he said. "'By all means.' I got up and went with him into the bar. It was a small hotel, of stone, somewhat pretentious in appearance, and it was kept by a half-caste Portuguese who smoked opium. There were not half a dozen people staying there, a Portuguese official and his wife waiting for a ship to take them to a distant colony, a Lancashire engineer who was sullenly drunk all day long, a mysterious lady, no longer young but of voluptuous appearance, who came to the dining room for meals and went back to her room immediately afterwards, and I had not seen the stranger before. I supposed he had come in that evening on a Chinese boat. He was a man of over fifty, I should think, shriveled as though the sap had been dried out of him by tropical suns, with a face that was almost brick-red. I could not place him. He might have been a skipper out of a job or the agent of some foreign firm in Hong Kong. He was very silent, and he made no answer to the casual remarks that I made in the course of the game. He played billiards well enough, though not excellently, but he was a very pleasant fellow to play with, and when he pocketed my ball, instead of leaving me a double balk, gave me a reasonable shot but when the game was over I should never have thought of him again if suddenly, breaking his silence for the first time, he had not put me a very odd question. "'Do you believe in fate?' he asked. "'At billiards?' I retorted, not a little astonished at his remark. "'No, in life.' I did not want to answer him seriously. "'I hardly know,' I said. He took his shot. 
He made a little break. At the end of it, chalking his cue, he said, I do. I believe if things are coming to you, you can't escape them. That was all. He said nothing more. When we had finished the game, he went up to bed, and I never saw him again. I shall never know what strange emotion impelled him to put that sudden question to a stranger. End of section 14 Recording by Nick Number